Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. This is episode 66 of the show. It's the Mario Lemieux episode. And while I wish we had planned better to have this be a hockey-centric show, we did talk hockey last week with Allison Lucan, who's the on-air analyst for the Seattle Kraken. So you can go back and listen to that for your hockey fix. Today's guest is more football-centric. You might remember about a week before the NFL draft at the end of April when all the misinformation that leaks around there. And among that, there was a story that revealed the S2 cognition test scores for a bunch of the top quarterback prospects. That was the first time most people had heard of S2 Cognition, so there was a lot of confusion, assumptions about what they do as a company and how they test things. Um, we at True Media, full disclosure, had just started working with S2 Cognition at that time, integrating their data alongside all the other traditional advanced stats available on our sites. So we know a little bit more about them, but to be honest, didn't have all the details. And now that the dust has settled, we wanted to talk to one of their people about what S2 Cognition does as a company. So. Today's guest is Brandon Alley, who co-founded the company in 2014. He's also their chief business development officer and director of football. And I think I can safely say this is a first for the show. He's a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Louisville. So he can obviously explain the whole idea and execution of cognitive testing much better than I can. So in this episode, Brandon and I will talk about his academic and career path before founding S2 Cognition, what the company actually does, their primary test itself and how it works, what the outputs look like, how the clients, including half of NFL teams, can then use that information, how these cognitive skills we all have can be improved, how S2's test is very different than the Wonderland test that most of us were familiar with for NFL prospects, different misconceptions about S2, his favorite John Wick movie, and maybe most importantly, where to get good barbecue in Nashville. Then producer Sergio De La Esperia will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with S2 Cognition co-founder Brandon Alley. We're joined now on Expected Value by Brandon Alley, co-founder of S2 Cognition. Brandon, I want to start by laying the groundwork with your academic background. Bachelor's in psychology, doctor of philosophy and neuropsychology from Southern Miss. Uh, I guess you just explain what the, the doctorate specifically is not a medical doctor per se, but a, a different kind of doctorate. What does a PhD in neuropsychology mean and encompass? Yeah, in general, it, meant, it means I spent way too much time in school. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, neuropsychology is, is essentially the field of understanding brain behavior relationships. And so that entails a lot of just classic psychology, understanding pathology, um, you know, what, 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 are, what are out of the expectations for behavior and those kinds of things. And really neuropsychology tunnels down into things like intelligence. So IQ, intellect, understanding those general concepts and how they lead to performance in things like academic settings, educational settings, um, those kinds of things. Once you start to get into advanced neuropsychology, you're really starting to use assessment tools. That's the basis of what neuropsychology is to understand brain behavior relationships and we're primarily in the clinical setting, understand how those things break down. So you're, you're thinking about adults that have acute uh, uh, visual problems or acute, they may have a stroke or they may have a heart attack or, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, you know, lack oxygen for a while. They're uh, 
close to drowning and then they have this behavioral change that their memory is worse or their thinking skills or reasoning skills are worse. And so we use tools uh, to, uh, you know, which are classic, what you probably assumed. You can go online and say, okay, give me a test of intellect or something like that. And you sort of understand how those things break down. So my area in particular in neuropsychology was really how memory and, and the visual system break down in the course of healthy and diseased aging. So my dissertation um, uh, was focused on um, how, how people in their 40s that have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, can we use some really sensitive and sophisticated sensory tools? So when you think about sensory, you're thinking about vision or auditory uh, to determine whether there are some markers of who may go on to develop Alzheimer's disease or who's at risk, higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, than than others. And so uh, neuropsychology is just a way of, of using tools from the literature to understand the way people think, reason, take in information, make sense of information, and how they interact with their world. So it sounds like, correct if I'm wrong, it's kind of a physical mental combination where your traditional psychology is a little more on the mental side and the neuro part is combining that with the physical what does what inside your brain. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so like my, my business partner and co-founder, Scott Wiley, looks at how, uh, uh, you know, trauma to the brain or different effects of the brain affect movement, your motor control. And so he was in the par Parkinson's world, understanding really early how the motor system breaks down with, you know, this is a neurotransmitter, neurochemical that diminishes over time because a brain region goes through atrophy. And so um, understanding how you start, stop, switch, redirect your motor system, especially on split second time frames. And so you can understand how that, how Scott's work and how my work with how very early visual processing, so how we interact with our, our visual world. So I did a lot of work on driving with older adults and, and how, how that sort of, how that works and, and understand how that sort of lays the groundwork for our, what we sort of advanced into the sports and athletics world. So there was about a decade between you know, finishing school and before S2 cognition came about. What did you do, what were you doing in that decade in between uh, just so we know your career path to where you are now? Yeah, so that that's really where the grind starts for most academics. And so neuropsychologists in general, PhDs in neuropsychology, I would say probably 80% of them go, go into clinical practice. So they may work at a hospital or they may work in a private practice setting where patients come in and say, hey, my husband, I've noticed some changes in the way he's thinking. And so you do an assessment and try to suss that out. Where the other 20% want to go into academics and study, you know, open a lab and study a field. Well, PhDs, um, in general, the you know your classic PhD came from the lab setting, and and so I straddled that in graduate school, where I worked in a pretty high end academic lab that was doing some rigorous research, while I was also getting a clinical doctorate. So you're left with options of, of postdoctoral training, essentially. And so I actually did two postdocs. So I extended this uh, this. <laughs> more time in school thing for another, <laughs> another three years. So I, uh, the first year postdoctorally to get your PhD and to be a licensed psychologist, clinical psychologist, you have to do a year worth of postdoctoral training under a clinical mentor. And so I did that. I was actually really fortunate in one of those like wild moments where it's like, Oh, I'm going to Harvard, but there was a, a PhD neuropsychologist at Harvard that was interested in my doctoral work, brought me into his lab. And so I spent a year 
uh, with him understanding really test development. So how do we how do we develop and evaluate the efficacy of a cognitive test? So, hey, I want to understand how pattern recognition works in the brain. How do I develop a test to understand that, evaluate the efficacy, evaluate the reliability of these measures, and then go on? And so that after I finished that year, I could have gone out and probably started a lab and gone into or gone into private practice. But I really wanted to focus on the research because I think that even though PhD is a research degree, I didn't understand basic research the way I wanted to. And so I did a two-year fellowship um, uh, that straddled uh, a, a relatively, not relatively, he's a huge name um, in classic psychology, Dan Schachter at Harvard University in the psychology department, and then Andrew Budson, who was really focused on how memory and vision break down. Um, and so I did another two years um, on an NIH-funded grant, postdoctoral grant, to understand um, science, understand the rigors of academics, and, and, and really bulk up my publication record, perform my own studies. And then after that was finished, I did a, a five-year career development award through the National Institute of Health, uh, again, focusing on um, really how understanding how uh, memory and vision work in the in the working normal brain, and then how they break down in the aging process. Uh, after that five years, I um, I started as an assistant professor at Boston University, um, working in the Department of Neurology there, um, uh, doing uh, running my own lab, um, and then I was recruited by Vanderbilt University in 2010 to come to Nashville um, in the Neurology and Neurosurgery Department there. Um, again, uh, was, was uh, climbing the academic professor ranks. Um, and that's where I met Scott. Uh, Scott came in 2011 to Vanderbilt. He had a similar path and was at uh, University of Virginia before. So we were working together at uh, Vanderbilt University for a few years prior to starting S2. But the concept, you know, I was a college athlete. Scott was a college athlete. So the concept of can we use the tools we use in our academic labs to understand high level cognition and athletes was sort of discussion from the time I've met Scott. So uh, it was sort of the, really the, the beginnings of S2. Yeah. So, I mean, in retrospect, you can kind of see all the groundwork being laid for S2 cognition and where you guys are now, but you, you co-found S2 in 2014. What's the, what's the origin story of how the company came about for you guys? Yeah, again, um, really relying on, you know, I've always been a relationship guy and um, uh, Scott and I, um, you know, we're just having discussions about like, what what does the brain have to engage in to hit 95 miles an hour as a hitter? You know, what does a quarterback have to do? We, we you know, we watched an NFL draft. I want to say it was in 2013 together with our, with our boys um, and they were just making comments like he plays faster than his foot speed he has anticipation he has a nose for the ball he's always one step ahead and we would always just say you know we we measure some of this stuff what what, what about if we put together a battery of the things we use in the lab um, and really the things that are in the scientific literature for decades to evaluate high level cognition because you know, some kids can do these things better than others, but there's these patterns we're seeing of, of like, hey, this quarterback is a scrambler. This quarterback is a, you know, he's just a, he's just a, a, a pro style passer. Those 
quarterbacks have to have different patterns of the way they process information and the way they deal with information. So that was sort of the, 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 the origin story of like why is understanding athletes and can we help these athletes uh, become better athletes. But, um, you know, I had a, a very good relationship with my strength and conditioning coach at college um, in, at the University of Tennessee, uh, Tommy Moffitt. And Tommy was the strength and conditioning coach at LSU for the last 22 years. Um, and, and Tommy and I, I, uh, I was a, an endurance athlete and Tommy uh, was, a, was an endurance biker. Um, and so we talked physiology for years. Um, and I, I just picked up the phone one day and said, hey, Tommy, here's what Scott and I have done. We, we've, we've outlined a battery of what we think football players have to engage in on the field. What do you think? And he said, I think it's really cool. You know, LSU is really cutting edge. Why don't you come down and give a talk? Uh, and so we gave a talk to the coaching staff and, and literally 10 days later, we were back there testing their entire 109 man roster. Uh, and uh, we went over with their player development staff and their coaches, these cognitive profiles that Scott and I had had built up. And, at the, and, that, and, in, and in those days, we didn't have sort of the AI to like look at the pattern results and help us automate these reports. So Scott and I hand wrote. 109 reports about what we thought these athletes would do, like how they're, how it would manifest in their play. Um, and the, the coaching staff was excited. So uh, that was really the origin story. That's how we got started in 2014 at LSU. And, and we've really used LSU as our beta test for just about everything, every sport we do, every test we put out, all of the evolution of the batteries came through sort of gathering data working with their sports science team to sort of understand the relationships and things like that. So I guess I should probably take a step back and because you can explain this better than I can. You just did some of that answer. What does the company do? What does S2 Cognition do on the whole from a high level? Yeah. So it's a, it's a great question. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that has been focused on or the S2 has been under the spotlight for because of the, this last round of media during the NFL is from a scouting perspective. And that's not really what S2 does. I think, you know, we've been in the college and uh, sub-college space for, for a longer period of time to really understand the way an athlete is wired for two reasons. One, you know, especially at the youth level, to start with player development aspects. So you can actually move the needle in cognitive performance, especially the younger athlete whose brain is still developing and maturing. Can we focus on things like, you know, is this athlete impulsive? Does he make a lot of impulsive mistakes? Um, can we set up a drill program six, eight weeks in the batting cage to uh, lower chase rates based on an impulse control? Um, and then at the higher level colleges, places like LSU, it was, you know, a lot of these guys, we don't, we don't have the dedicated time to focus on like a youth athlete would help us understand how our athletes are wired so that we can put them in the best position to succeed. So does this athlete play better man, be man press corner than he does sort of cover corner or nickel? Does this athlete play better in the middle of the field? Is he a better Mike than he is, you know, will, can he play on the line of scrimmage or does he need a hair longer to process visual information? Should he play on the line, off the line? Um, what kind of route selection 
you know, how much complexity can we layer up this wide receiver for choice routes? Is this a guy who can only do, you know, two options, two choices, or is this a guy we can load up with four, five, six options? Uh, so to understand how to utilize a player, understand player development, that's what S2 was sort of founded on. That's what Scott and I have always been interested in. And we're, you know, our labs were focused on cognitive rehab, especially with older adults. Um, but then it became very clear when places like LSU and, uh, and, and Vanderbilt and Alabama and those schools were talking with scouts about the way this kid is wired, that scouts were like, oh, hang on. We can use this in the scouting process. And so that became a very different product. That became a very different bend. And I think that it's taken an educational lift um, to understand that S2 is not just a number. It's not just a score, an overall score that, hey, this kid's going to make it in the NFL. This kid's not going to make it in the NFL. That's never what we wanted this to be. And that's not what we are. You know, and the NFL teams who use us, would never say, okay, this score, this kid scored a 93. We know he's going to be a starter. <laughs> that, it, it, that, that is not ever in a discussion. So um, just understanding how athletes are wired and how best to utilize them, we understand that that's, that's a hard thing to do. Predicting human behavior is hard to do. So that's really the foundation of, of S2. So let's talk a little bit about the test, the eval itself, because it's obviously very different than the whatever SAT, the Wonderlick, anything uh, traditional in that sense. Let's start with the how. How is the test administered? Because this is not fill out the circles, color yeah. them in, et cetera. How is the test, the main eval administered? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the things that we ask humans to do, especially athletes, are on very short time frames. And that's the difference really between what Scott and I have identified as speeded cognition and IQ, where you have time to reason and think through and problem solve. Everything we do is, is in the visual domain. It's done on a specialized uh, monitor that can, you know, we're, we're very concerned with precision. So the monitors that we use, we have relationships with, with hardware companies that they're illuminating pixels within one to two one thousandth of a second. We know exactly when that happens. We use oscilloscopes and high-speed cameras. We know that a stimulus is on the screen for 15 one thousandth of a second. We know how, how long it takes that pixel to offset. Uh, we're interested in reaction time and, you know, so reaction time done on a standard laptop or standard computer or even worse, an iPad doesn't <laughs> have the resolution right. as as a laboratory based, uh, you know, device that has an internal clock in it that can can do these things. So we're really interested in these. Every test that we administer requires sub second or even sub half second responses. And you're really responding to visual stimuli on the screen. That, that has been used in the cognitive sciences literally for decades to understand how the brain works. And so I think that that's a really fundamental principle to understand S2 is that we measure, we use tools from the cognitive sciences to measure how the brain system operates. And so then we make assumptions and translations of how that will impact athletic performance. So as an example, um, a very standard literature standard task of impulse control. Been in the literature for 75 years. Mm -hmm. We understand your impulse control system, how it's wired. So everyday life, you're sitting at a stoplight, right? The lane to your left is the turn lane. That left arrow turns green. We impulsively hit the gas, even though our, red, our light is still red. We've all felt that. We've all been there. Some of us, when we're tired, especially, we'll absolutely hit that. We're halfway in the intersection, <laughs> hit the, hit the brake. You know, that's your impulse control system. It governs 
your ability to, to, to shield yourself from the impulse to go or redirect your motor system to stop. That's the same impulse control system that governs your, your, your control of swinging at a slider in the dirt. You know, uh, it's the same system that governs your ability to, to not jump off sides on a hard count or to grab a jersey when you feel like you've been burned. So we measure how well that system operates on time scales of, you know, one tenth of a second, two tenths of a second, the same time frame that misdirections happen, right? We run misdirections reverses in 2023 because they work. They capitalize on the way the brain system is wired to respond in the direction of movement. Um, And so that's your impulse control system. So we measure how an athlete's overall impulse control system is functioning. And then we can make an assumption. If this guy scores low on impulse control as a quarterback, he may throw some impulsive balls for interceptions. As a hitter, he may swing at sliders in the dirt or the high heater just out of the zone. So every sport we measure, the battery of tests is different. They've evolved over time. But essentially, we try to encapsulate or measure the cognitive skills that are critical for that sport or that position, and then inform coaches or equip coaches with the knowledge of how an athlete is wired. And then we can make some assumptions of how that athlete will play. So what are the, what are the outputs look like? Like you talked impulse control, refs, a couple others come up with a list of things and they get category scores. What's, what's the output look like after the test is processed? Yeah, the output for us looks very different than obviously what our consumer um, uh, gets. So we we may have 150 variables on an, on a on a typical football player as an example uh, that may be you know reaction time in in milliseconds or visual degree angle or pixels on the screen and distance um, uh, accuracy measures, and then we uh, really concatenate those measures to provide an overall metric that is um, then compared to a, a normative database. And all of our normative databases are very specific. So, you know, if you're a 14-year-old quarterback, we now have enough 14-year-old quarterbacks that we can compare you to. If you're an NFL safety, we'll compare you to NFL safeties. Um, and we look at, you know, you're, you're very familiar with this, but, um, you know, the audience is probably familiar, but we, we'll take that compared to the normative database and come up with a Z-score. Right. And Z-score is the number of standard deviations away from that normative mean. And then we assign it a percentile rank. And so all of our consumers have these percentile ranks. So, hey, you scored in the 83rd percentile on impulse control compared to NFL safeties. That means that safety scored better than 83% of the safeties taking the test. Right. Now, our analytics groups at, at our high end consumers like our pro and college teams, obviously, they get raw data um, and they're 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 looking for relationships between performance on the field or some outcome measure that we can define or things like that. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the the classic metric that a college or youth player will get will give you, you know, sort of the nine tests that you've gotten, your how do you rank, and then some player development feedback on how to utilize the player, some drill suggestions depending on your sport. Uh, and so it depends on what what consumer level that we're at. What's a, what's an example of just one question that's on the test? You mentioned looking at a screen. There's some a lot of it's reaction based. What's what's an example of how one of them goes? Yeah, I think. Um... You know, one that that is routinely used and other companies use, I think that we've, we've talked about it in the media quite a bit, is like object tracking, 
multiple object tracking is something that is 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 well studied and characterized in the literature. But this looks at you know how well you can broaden your attention and keep track of multiple moving objects, right? And so um, I think it you know it can relate to things like um, uh, oh I guess I'll go back a little bit and and talk about the test itself. So the way the test, the way an athlete would interact with it is there may be 12 balls on the screen, right? And six of them are highlighted. So you know, okay, these six highlighted balls, these are the ones I've got to keep track of. And then the highlight goes away. All 12 balls start moving. You need to keep track of the six we asked you to keep track of at the beginning. After a certain amount of time, we try to mimic the duration of a typical play. Uh, so after five, six seconds, whatever, the balls stop, and then you use your mouse to identify which balls um, uh, were, were pre-selected. And so after enough trials, you can come up with uh, a K. K is a measure of, uh, it takes into consideration how many distractors and how many you can identify versus how many you're supposed to identify. And it gives us a basic metric of uh, how many objects you can keep track of at various speeds um, with various number of distractors. So it can give information about, you know, hey, I'm a safety. I need to keep track of, you know, two receivers, the ball, all of those sorts of things. Can a, can a player do that? Where's his limits or things like that? Is the test different for different sports? I mean, obviously you need different skills at either different positions or different, you know, baseball versus football, basketball, whatever. It, it'll vary sport to sport or even position to position. That's correct. Yeah. So most definitely sport to sport. Um, and the way that that typically operates, and again, this is how we used LSU at the beginning, but now we've got relationships um, uh, with a number of coaches and teams and things like that, is that we will generally say, so let's say we go into a new sport. Um, let's say it's hockey. We may meet with a player development specialist um, a coach and an athlete and really walk through what are the cognitive demands. So if you've got a goalie, so the goalie battery is different than the, the forward defenseman battery. If you've got a goalie, what are the demands? What does he have to do on a typical play? And we'll dialogue back and forth. We'll, we'll work through what evaluations, what tests, either that we already use in the S2 battery or ones that are in the scientific literature that we have our IT team program up. Uh, and then we evaluate that athlete. It may start at two hours long uh, and we start to identify which ones have the most signal, which ones do the coaching staff, scouts and things, do they feel like match up with what they're seeing? Um, We'll drop tests, we'll add tests, we'll go through this process, which usually takes about two years, honestly, of identifying, okay, this is where we want to land. This is how we want to, you know, or evaluate prospects moving forward. And so usually that happens after we've gotten anywhere between 60 and 100 at a particular position. So we may test 60 to 100 goalies. We feel comfortable in the test retest reliability. We feel comfortable in uh, the validity of the ecological validity. Hey, it's measuring what we think it's measuring. It, it's measuring what scouts are seeing. And then once that process sort of happens, we take it into sort of the, the, the real world, if you will, uh, where we're actually helping with the draft process and, and helping with uh, player development at, at larger number of teams and things like that. So each test is different. Each uh, position is different, and usually that happens over a period of time, uh, predominantly with input from the content expert. We, we consider content experts, which are the athletes and coaches. Yeah, sort of a academic-ish question. So, how do you, or how have you gone about the process of 
I don't know if validating the data is the right way of asking it, but you know, just knowing that this is valuable at being predictive or a developmental angle for a team. How, how do you validate that to know that this is useful information? Yeah, great, great question. So the first and foremost is that, you know, we select tests from the scientific literature that have a high level of ecological validity, especially in different types of clinical populations. Um, and then the second level of validity for us is that, um, that, that recognition from the people who utilize tools in the sports space. So if a scouting department is saying, yeah, this is matching up. It's sort of the eyeball test, right? Is that is that first layer within sports? So you've got your academic sort of uh, validity. Then you've got the eye test validity where, you know, we may write up, you know, this player will make these types of mental mistakes. Does it match up? What that looked like in the NFL as we went through um, uh, three years with LSU and, and actually in the background, we were operating with the Saints and Cowboys at that time. But we did a simple study of like, let's break this up into thirds. Let's take S2 high scores, S2, uh, you know, moderate scores, S2 low scores, and let's take their scouting grades and let's put them in high, medium and low. And how much of what percentage of time do we match up? Right. And so that was sort of layer one, if you will, in, this, in sports, it was kind of like the eyeball test and this basic simple validity type test. Um, and then once we got once you get comfortable with that, we moved into this layer of, okay, can we start to link to performance? Because ultimately that's sort of the level we want to get to. That's a, that's a tough game in football. In baseball, we were seeing relationships immediately. So we were seeing high, high relationships to if you scored low on impulse control, you had high rates of chase rates. It is still to this day, one of the highest predictors of chase rates in professional baseball. You know, we looked at trajectory, how well you can predict where something will land in space, had a high relationship to, to these teams, uh, markers of strike zone discipline. Um, you know, are they swinging at pitches out of the zone? Are they swinging at pitches in the zone? Can they identify different zones? Uh, perception speed was linking to, can these players hit certain velocities? So we were seeing sort of those simple um, relationships. And of course, we get dinged about that in the public all the time. Oh, these guys got relationships on their website to, uh, you know, passer rating or interception rating. Yeah, it, we understand that that's very simplistic and that doesn't show anything to performance. But the, you know, as you're fully aware of the NFL, these teams have analysts, these teams have four or five, six PhDs on staff who look for relationships for a living. So it's not our job to do their job. So they're the ones identifying these relationships in, you know, uh, you know, yards above value, points above value, all of those sorts of things. They're the ones identifying those relationships. And I'll be honest with you, half of those teams tell us they're finding relationships, but won't you can tell us what those relationships are are. and half of the teams who, you know, some of who we've worked with eight, 10 years are comfortable telling us those things, but that's not something we're going to put in the media. That's not something we're going to put up on our website. It's just, that's not how business works. Right. I mean, we have a level of, of uh, protection and exclusivity with these teams. So we're not sort of announcing, Hey, we can predict X. Right. And so um, that, that's sort of the last level of validation, uh, uh, 
you know, validity for us is the teams doing those high level analytics and reporting to us either what they are or what they're finding or what they're finding value. A lot of our pro teams actually have been very clear about, hey, look, in your raw data. So as, as we talked about, we, we give nine scores and I think the public maybe have seen nine scores, but we may give an MLB team 109 variables and they may pull out literally seven of them and put them in a model with other things like exit velo, force plate or whatever. And that model, which encapsulates a couple of our variables with their other variables is highly predictive of, is this guy going to top out in triple A ball? Does he have a shot at, at, at the show? You know, and so those are the kinds of things we're helping inform. Nothing ever has been said or we've said, well, S2 alone can predict this guy's going to be in a Hall of Fame. That's just not how reality works, right? But if we can help them really narrow down uncertainty through that validation, I think that that's where the value is. Yeah, I think you mentioned in one article I read that, you know, it's roughly like 30% of maybe what goes into making a quarterback or a player particularly good at certain things which is obviously significant, but not the be all end all by any stretch. It's another tool, I guess, in the toolbox for all these teams, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, when you think about these guys who use it from a scouting perspective, let's say you've never, you, you just hear about an athlete, right? Or this, this kid's the best in the world, right? There's a huge level of uncertainty if you're an NFL team. So what's the first thing you do? Oh, well, you get tape on the kid. Okay, well, I've watched him play. Now my level of uncertainty has gone from 100% to 50%. Let's get the kid in. You talk to him, you meet him. He's a good kid. Now my level of uncertainty has gone down even further. Let's get S2 on him, right? So S2 is just helping reduce that level of uncertainty. It's not like predicting, okay, this guy's going to be, uh, you know, an A1 starter. This guy's going to be a hall of famer. And again, as we talked about earlier, right, we're measuring capacity of a system. So you can score at the 90th percentile, 95th percentile across the board on everything we measure, if you're 5'7", 180 right. and run 5'5", it, it, it doesn't matter how good your brain is wired, right? It's it's just one piece of the athletic puzzle. You've got to have all the other intangibles, if you will, grit, determination, response for failure. Do you like who you're playing with? Do you like who you're playing for? Physical skills, technical skills, all of those things form the athlete puzzle. So we're just one small piece of that puzzle. We happen to think it's a really important piece. Right. But <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how improvable are these different traits at certain ages? You mentioned maybe if you get them at 14, something might be easier to change than when you're 22 or something. How does that work in relation to brain development and things kind of firming up in a person's head? Yeah. So each thing we measure kind of... Uh, is on a continuum, if you will. So the visual system itself, when you start thinking about early visual input and, and, and looking and finding things in your environment, that's fairly well established uh, in boys um, between 13 and 15 years of age. If we're talking about football here, girls can be a little later on the visual side of things, but um, on other things like frontal lobe development may be earlier than boys. But for boys, it's between 15 and uh, 13 and 15 years of age. So things are fairly stable in your visual environment. So how much can you improve the needle after that? It's really hard, right? You, you're, 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 you're sort of almost at your genetic ceiling, if you will. Now you can train it to be at your genetic ceiling more consistently. You know, I use the example of like Peyton Manning, right? Peyton Manning ran 5'2 for, for a 40 
if he started with Usain Bolt's track coach from the time he was born, he was still never running four six, right? He still had that genetic ceiling. Now, could he run five one five zero, and could he do that consistently? Probably so if he started young and, 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 and really worked on it. So that's the kind of movement is obviously you have genetic bumpers, um, but you want to be able to train that system to be very efficient. Now, once you start getting into frontal load, frontal based stuff like impulse control, distractibility, your ability to improvise, that's not fully maturated until your mid 20s. So you can see a lot of movement in there, especially as you know, I mean, you can think about teenage boys, you've got eighth graders who are shaving, and you've got you know, eighth graders who won't shave for another three years, your brain development is still has that sort of window. So, but in general, you know, you're not going to see a kid who scores in the 20, 20th percentile all of a sudden be in the 80th percentile, but you can see some development, but those processes are really amenable to development. You know, if you start doing impulse control drills at a young age, you can really refine the process. The other thing I want to say about training is that um, the big thing that that we're concerned with and that we're very aware of is transfer effects, right? And so when you think about the lumosities of the world or the brain training, uh, brain training apps or anything you do on a device, it's really hard to, to, to make any type of transfer to the field. It's really far transfer. So we would gotcha. never yeah. recommend training using our test or right. training using a device. You've got to train on the field. So if you want to move the needle in that cognitive system, you're not going to train the system level, which is what you're doing on all those brain training apps, right? And you get better at that game, but you don't get better at what you want to get better at. So if you're a quarterback, if you train on the S2 device impulse control system levels thing, you may get better at the at, at that particular thing, but you're not going to throw any fewer interceptions as a quarterback. You've got to work on impulse control in the setting as close to game speed as possible. And so that's how you kind of move the needle in sport. And so it depends on the, te- the, the cognitive system, depends on the age of the athlete. But in general, moving the needle in the cognitive space takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. You've got a lot of press for better and worse around NFL draft, especially this year. What was the most common misconception or critique that you saw coming toward S2 cognition that you would want to push back on and clarify for people? Yeah, I think the biggest misconception is really what we are, you know, what we measure and what we do. Um, I think the two biggest misconceptions is that, you know, I think it was very easy to say, okay, this is a test that has replaced the Wonderlick. Right. Um, you know, this is a, a, another version of the Wonderlick, uh, and it's just, it's just simply not. It has nothing to do with IQ. I mean, we've been very careful um, in the way that we selected tests, uh, and we selected the tests. And again, like if you want to look at impulse control, there may be 20 or 30 tests in the scientific literature that have the same validity, um, but some of them are less amenable to effects like uh, uh, resources growing up. Uh, education, uh, IQ, um, race, all of those things can be biased, right? They can bias performance on these types of tests. So we selected ones that would not be biased in that way. Uh, and that's another sort of side of S2 that that hasn't been out there, right? We've worked with our teams to look, is there any effect of race? Is there any effect of kids who had poor academic performance versus high academic performance? And so we're really devoid of IQ and it's not an IQ test. And we've seen kids who, who have, you know, would, would, would 
would be poor academic test takers just crush S2. Hmm. And so we're not in that space. And I think we got lumped into that space. And there are certainly other tests in the NFL draft process that straddle that line. They're, they're pulled straight from the IQ space, but they can measure things like visual processing or what they would call reaction speed. Um, and, and so you kind of get pulled in that world and it's, it's really very different. And the other, the other, you know, sort of thing was that, you know, just the pushback felt as if, as if S2 was either involved or we wanted to see somebody fail. It's like, this is the last thing that we wanted. Like scores getting out there is, is not good for, you know, our, our client. We don't, we don't need any more business in the NFL. We're maxed out. We're, we're two teams in every division. We don't need the NFL world knowing who we are. Those teams pay for a level of exclusivity. And when scores get leaked, they lose that level of exclusivity. Right. right? And so there's a lot that goes into that. And so, um, you know, obviously the CJ Stroud thing was huge. Like, like we wanted to see CJ fail. Like, the, no, not at all. <laughs> um, and as a matter of fact, the Texans are not an S2 team. Uh, you know, some of the scores out there were not accurate. So there's a lot that sort of goes into it. So I think we got a lot of pushback, yeah. um, particularly from Ohio State fans who have learned are very rabid supporters of their, <laughs> of their athletes. Uh, really? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I mean, just those, those kinds of things, but I think, you know, look, S2 and cognition is not for everybody. We get it. You know, they're, they're old school sports people who, who believe that the eyes are connected to the muscles and it's just pin your ears back and go and, and, and we'll never uh, sort of really dig into the, the, this kind of space and, and we get it and that's okay. Um, but, you know, I think what has been good about it is that we've been able to educate a lot of people about, uh, you know, how the brain operates in these, in these environments. And just like everybody is different, di wired differently in personality or intellect, or like nowadays we're trying to uh, route kids in school with their own individualized learning plans. That's kind of what S2 is in the athlete space is we're trying to learn how an athlete is wired so that we can help improve them or put them on the field in positions we know that they're going to have a lot of success. Yeah. It reminds me of my time back at ESPN when we're developing new metrics, analytics, and trying to explain, you know, QBR or a power index or something. And it just takes time to, for people to kind of accept them, ask their questions, get everything explained. Uh, yeah, it was like, really good. Like uh, talking with, with you guys, you know, was part of it talking yeah. with Sam Monson at uh, PFF mm -hmm. and understanding the process and like, look, we face so much pushback and, and trash talk in social media <laughs> yeah. when we were first trying to get off the ground. Right. And we still face like PFF metrics are trash, this, that, and the other. And it's like, look, you know, our, our business, the, the main business, those are the guys that, you know, or using it, supporting it and those kinds of things. And, and we get it. It's not for everybody. So you mentioned your endurance running is your background. You coach a competitive track team in Nashville. So I have to ask, how does this professional side of you cross over or not cross over into the coaching side, which is obviously at a much different level and different sport? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a very much a scientist at heart. And so I use data for absolutely everything. And mm -hmm. so I, my poor athletes, uh, <laughs> you know, they wear power meters, you know, on their shoes. And so I capture as much data as possible and try to really tailor training programs to, 
um, you know, what their specific needs are, what their, you know, uh, their development and things like that. And so our, our program um, is very science driven. It's very, you know, I'm scouring the literature to find, you know, how physiology works and all of those kind of things to just try to, uh, you know, really help, help move the needle. Yeah. Coach is throwing numbers at us again. Great. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap this up with our plain favorite segment. Where we just go through a number of, of your favorite things. Uh, what sure. is your favorite number and why? My favorite number. Lucky you know, number, a, favorite number, anything yeah, like that. Yeah. As a kid, I liked the number eight just uh-huh. because it was round. It probably says something yeah. about my personality, but it was, <laughs> you know, it was a nice, even looking round yeah, looking good. number. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, favorite athlete of yours as a kid? Favorite athlete of mine as a kid. So I lived in track and field since I was since I was old enough to walk. And so Carl Lewis was obviously my my yeah. favorite athlete growing up. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, also had visions like most kids that I was going to be an Olympic, you know, athlete or a pro f- basketball player. So I love Magic Johnson growing up. I loved that those early '80s Lakers teams was always fun to watch. And those are the guys I wanted to be when I was in the driveway. Yep. You're in Nashville. Barbecue, yes. one of the foods of choice in Nashville. Do you have a favorite barbecue place that you recommend to people? Uh, I always default to Edley's in Sylvan Park. I know there are multiple Edley's, but so the Sylvan Park area hasn't been overrun by tourists yet. So um, <laughs> I absolutely love Edley's. Great any, any specific orders you got to go to there? Uh, I love their dry rub wings with the white barbecue sauce. That's my white default. barbecue sauce. White barbecue what, sauce. What? What? I'm Kansas City guy, so I have to ask the barbecue sauce question. What makes it white barbecue sauce? It's obviously not it's tomato good, based or something. It's a good question, and every time we've had it, it's 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 sort of classified in this Alabama style, okay. which I think is less vinegar. Um, but it's really flavorful. I like it. All right. I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, you mentioned this on Twitter. So I'm going to ask favorite John wick movie of the four. Oh man. They're all so different. Um, I guess if I'm on an airplane and have four hours to kill and they're all four, I'm going to, I'm going to go with one. I I mean, I know that they're, they're, uh, I'm probably going to, yeah, people can, debate me on that but there's just so much cool information in one the you first just one, learn yeah. so much of the story and the characters in there willem dafoe is, i mean it just it it's always i mean it's just a great movie all right and finally uh favorite how did i get here moment for you kind of a. Uh, all right this is kind of cool where my career's brought me and you shake your head and be able to soak in where you've come <laughs> you know i think that i uh this is this is probably this uh, imposter syndrome um, for all of us that we've mm-hmm. all experienced. It's just every level for me. Like I ran for the University of Tennessee in the early 90s. We were national champs. I had six Olympians on my team, two medal winners. And it's like, okay, what am I doing on this team? I don't belong here. <laughs> you know, then I'm at Harvard Medical School and Harvard University for, for five years. I'm like, whoa, I, you know, I am I don't belong here. And then, you know, I'm on the Pat McAfee show, you know, during last, this last NFL draft. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, what am I doing here? I'm just this kid from a small town in Louisiana who likes to run and loves science. And yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. Everyone's got wild stories about where, where we've come in the sports world, especially. So uh, Brandon Alley, co-founder of S2 Cognition. We appreciate you joining us here on Expected Value. Paul loved it. Thanks for having me. Man. Thank you. 
back in the True Media Studios. I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to S2 Cognition's Brandon Alley for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at BrandonAlley3. Also, S2 Cognition on Twitter for more on what he and they do across a variety of sports. We'll have some links to a few other articles about the company in our show notes as well. I'm joined now by producer Sergio De La Esperia. Sergio, first, I have a confession to make. Not proud of this, but it's true. I've never seen a John Wick movie. Can you forgive me? I think I have to resign. I'll well, forgive you, but I think we had I have a good to run on the podcast. Yeah, we had a good run. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I, the only defense I have is the first one came out right when my daughter was born. So you know, obviously, I wasn't getting to a theater, but it's not like they haven't been accessible for you know eight years since then. Yeah, there was a run where they were all on formerly HBO Max, now just yes. Max, but I it's it's an inexplicable blind spot for someone who loves movies and loves action movies. I I. Can't defend it. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'll I'll forgive you. Just okay. just like you, I need you to forgive me because you did mention Mario Lemieux. How this is that episode, but I've actually never seen a game of hockey before. I don't know if you know that or basketball rather. Um, I, I don't watch those sports, but right, I do. Right, right. I, I do like baseball and I, I do like football, which is what we what we got into on this episode. So <laughs> I'm just well, so glad that we can finally get to some sports that I actually right. know about. There's no right. way that my team's lost. In the no, final. no. Well, spoke, the, spoken like a true fan of the Panthers. And oh, Duke, of course. But yeah. We don't need to talk about that. now. None of that. No. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, what we learned, what we took away from this conversation with Brandon. We'll, we'll start with you. What did you kind of tree top? What did you pull away from there? So like you said, we had been working with the company. We knew what this was here at True Media, but I know that the general football fan, the first they had heard about it was when these leaks of the scores had happened a few months ago. Right. And personally, when I saw that that leak happened, I assumed, like many others, was it was the Wonderlick test. That's the famous, everyone right. knows that that's kind of the exam that's given out. And I, I like that Brandon kind of spoke about the Wonderlick test, about how you know, it, it's a little bit biased in the way that it is constructed by no fault of its own. It's just, you know, the way that it's adapted. Over it's time. like the SAT and the ACT they tried to tweak in the last few years. Exactly. Exactly. And it was just nice to see someone who is in charge and at the forefront of developing assessment for these prospective NFL players to know that that is something that they keep in mind when they are creating their own test, right? Eventually you have to adapt. Eventually you have to change. And so um, I know like many others, Wonderlick was kind of the first thing that came to my head, but knowing that there's someone in charge that is able to take those criticisms and um, comments and ways of thinking of this ex of the former exam, I'm speaking of Wonderlick now, um, in creating their own version and their own way of assessing, I think that that's very important for the future of assessment and not just in football, but like you said, the SAT, the ACT, maybe we see the LSAT for prospective lawyers, the MCAT for prospective doctors. It's just a good way to always adapt and tweak our assessment mechanism. So I thought that that was wonderful. And I thought that that was a very important point um, to that. I want to ask you, Paul, in terms of what did you think of the difference in what he said between his exam and like that and the Wonderlick? Because as a casual football fan, you know, we we just think of the Wonderlick. And so with this new exam that's kind of come in, I'm curious to hear what you think about kind of the differences and and what Brandon had said throughout the interview. I mean, this seems much more directly applicable. You know, if you can solve a word problem, like that's something, but does it connect to whatever part of football? Maybe somehow, I don't know. Um, but just the, yeah, the different ways you can connect 
whatever, how quickly your brain processes information, how you see differences in things, how you track different objects at once. Uh, I was really impressed with the rigor of what it sounds like goes into putting the test together. You know, we talked about different, you know, journals and methodologies that are, uh, you know, well-known within the you know, neuro neuroscience industry that they're then applying to this, you know, stuff that's, that I have no idea, you know, how it works or, or where it comes from, but, you know, he's been in this world for you know a couple decades and he can, they know what, how these things work maybe outside of football or what's been peer reviewed or whatever it is. Uh, so, so yeah, just the, the way they took kind of in some ways existing tests or material and then connected it with, you know, existing knowledge of what we know about football and how people excel at football, et cetera. So it seems to make sense. You know, obviously I don't understand all the science behind it, but it seems like a logical way to approach something. Take one thing that's proven, take another thing that's proven and kind of put them together. Well, it's nice that we have an actual neuroscientist who is in charge of, you know, people say it's not rocket science. It's not neuroscience. Well, no. this guy knows that. So at the very least, he's got that background. Yeah, you know? he's, a, he's a professor of neurosurgery. So it is kind of brain surgery in some ways. If, they, if there's someone who knows about the brain and assessing it, I'm pretty sure it's the professor of neurosurgery. Yeah. That's what I think. One other thing I thought, he didn't say this explicitly, but just the way he talked about different things. He often said that, uh, you know, this part of the test may show this, may show that. And it goes to the importance and and the challenge of expressing uncertainty when relating data to people. You know, I know this from my ESPN time when I'm trying to you know relay advanced stats to analysts or producers. When you start saying things like the numbers prove this, or even the numbers say, the numbers show, you can, not always, it depends on your audience, but you can kind of get in trouble because nothing's certain. And sometimes that turns people off. We don't know that you know Victor Wembanyama is going to be a great NBA player. I mean, all the signs, all the measurables, all the eye, eye tests are obviously there, but nothing proves it. So we can say there's a whatever percent chance. Uh, it doesn't prove. It's more of a, this suggests something. This may show this. Uh, so it's, it's not easy to express that uncertainty, especially in sports. You know, this is a black and white world. You win or you lose. And that's tough. But whether it, it is the likelihood of something happens based on historical data, the percentage of model projects, like just being able to say that well, and sometimes it's as simple as changing that verb to, you know, it looks like this, or it might be this, or numbers kind of suggest this. Like, that's super important for my experience in expressing data to people who aren't as familiar or aren't as comfortable with that information. Yeah, that's always the key, right? I mean, the central thesis of this podcast, which I feel like I say every single episode, is how do we find a way to marry the eye test with the numbers? And I think a way, like you said, to be able to get people to buy in if they haven't before isn't to say, hey, this is it. Like the numbers may be black and white themselves, but the application isn't always black and white. It's always gray. There's a way to do it. There's a way to do it incorrectly, stuff like that. So I also think um, from the interview, I, I really liked uh, Brandon's approach to to the company, which was they're, they're kind of exclusive, right? He mentioned in a comment that it was, they only had two teams per division. And I think that that may be something that maybe worked into their contracts. I don't know, but in a way, like, I think that, you know, we live in a world where companies are always looking for growth, right? right. More um, is more. More is more, right. And like we at True Media don't have shareholders, but obviously it's going to be in our company's best interest and in our uh, main investor, full disclosure, Tony Khan, the owner of the Jags and Fulham and stuff. It's in their best interest, in his best interest for us to continue to grow. Now, there isn't that obligation to a shareholder, like I said, but we do want to be able to get the most out of it. And in a, 
industry like data and an industry like assessment in an industry like um, testing out and getting information to teams, you would think that the more data that you have available, the more um, kind of the more shots at the dartboard that you get, the more information you're going to receive. But in their idea and in their philosophy, it's let's be more specific. Let's be more um, exclusive and only provide it to a couple of teams per division. I believe that that's to you know maintain that competitive advantage that those teams have over the others, and that may be something that sets them apart. But I really thought it was interesting that in a world where we're always trying to grow, we're always trying to these businesses and data, everyone's trying to get more and more information. They're kind of zigging while everyone else is zagging, and they're going to go to the exclusivity thing. And that may, in the long run, make their product a bit more attractable, um, maybe get their valuation a bit higher because we're humans, right? We want what we can't have. That that exclusivity is something that we always kind of, um, you know, a hype beast, right? Someone who collects sneakers and stuff. They want that sneaker so that other people can't have it, right? That was a very uh, late millennial, early Gen Z analogy for me. But... Yeah, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I, I get the gist of it at least. <laughs> well, that's what you get when you have a 27-year-old producer right. and and, and, an and the show co-host, Paul. That's what happens. Right. So right. that exclusivity is something that people crave. And I thought that that was a very interesting approach and different from what we've seen in data and in American corporate business. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. I know a few other companies do similar things kind of in the, the sports analytics space. I'm always curious, like, how long can it keep up? But at some point, you know, is it, I mean, it's obviously a supply and demand thing. If you can charge more than half and get twice as many teams, it makes it worth it. But yeah, it does It does simplify some things and lets you be able to concentrate a little bit more on your current clients, which is which can be a good thing. Yeah. All right. Sergio, thank you for keeping the show young. I do want to say, go Gators. Um, and I do want to say congrats to True Media, because regardless of who wins the national championship, that team will be a true media client. So Three in a row. very happy. Right. Three in a row. Always, always undefeated. All right. That's how we say so. All right. Go Gators, I guess. And thanks for keeping us young, Sergio. And thank you one last time to S2 Cognition co-founder Brandon Alley for joining us on the show. Lots of other football-centric guests in the archives. Roger David, formerly of the Falcons, talked about scouting players from a more traditional angle. Former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum hit on blending data and scouting for draft purposes. And our own John Terramina a couple weeks ago walked through everything an analyst does for a team, including uh, draft stuff, college data, etc. Uh, please do all the things we as podcasters like. Subscribe, rate, even review the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen. You can also follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports, T-R-U Media Sports, to keep up with the pod and everything else we do. On behalf of our young producer, Sergio De La Esperia, and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.